All right, all right. That's what I'm talking about. Now, everyone, give it up for the maid of honor, Angelica Skylar. Lactose to the groom. To the groom. To the groom. To the groom. To the bride. To the bride. Satisfied. Is that right? I've never been satisfied. My name is Angelica Schuyler. Alexander Hamilton. Where's your family from? Unimportant. There's a million things I haven't done. Just you wait. Just you. Well, uh, good evening. It's a little after 6:30 Eastern Standard Time. Welcome to Gray Matters here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Dick Whaley. Jim Dwyer, my partner, is a lucky man. <laughs> He's headed down to see the Craftwork Show in Detroit. So I don't know if there are tickets available for that, but that would be, I think, a pretty seminal music experience, regardless of what kind of music you like, just because Craftwork is one of those. Bands that's influence probably exceeds their uh, actual production, but significant craft work, yeah, that would be awesome to see, especially uh, Jim told me it was at the Masonic Temple, so check that out. Obviously a uh, kind of an amazing week in the news with all of the startling developments. If you were listening to Gray Matters a couple weeks ago, I reported that Putin, Vladimir Putin, had moved... Uh, aircraft and uh, military advisors into the Syria military arena. And that conflagration is just going to get worse. And uh, as the saying goes, there are no good options. Uh, the Syria problem, of course, has been pretty much an international disaster for many years. And part of the interesting historical comparison uh, that might be the most analogous uh, comparison would be the um, Spanish Civil War in which outside powers were involved in supporting the overthrow of the Spanish government 
Uh, this, of course, included Adolf Hitler and Mussolini, the fascist powers. The British and French sort of stood by, but eventually the Soviet Union got involved in the Spanish Civil War, and the factions that were supporting the Republican government, the so-called loyalists, were a hodgepodge of left-wing uh, coalition partners, so to speak. A popular front government had been elected in Spain in early February of 1936, and Franco, a military uh, leader, organized a uprising, coup d'etat, so to speak, that started in July. And Adolf Hitler eventually sent in his heir, uh, his uh, Condor, I think it was called the Condor Legion. Uh, this proved to be a testing ground for Adolf Hitler's military equipment. Mussolini ended up uh, committing about 40,000 ground troops. And the infighting within the left-wing factions that were trying to support a very unstable government in Spain, a left-wing coalition government, really were fighting more amongst themselves uh, than successfully being able to stave off the, uh, military, uh, the military uprising that Franco led, complicated by religion, all of the historical problems of Spain's uh, relative backwardness compared to... Uh, the rest of Western Europe, and of course Franco eventually prevailed and uh, put in f a fascist system in Spain. And other than committing a few uh, troops uh, to the invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941, he r remained relatively neutral in World War II. I think I mentioned World War I, World War II. So Hitler uh, tested out his uh, Air Force uh, equipment and Mussolini wanted a uh, sort of uh, propaganda victory of sorts. And, of course, there were hundreds of thousands of people killed in Spain. Uh, American volunteers, uh, most famously known as the Abraham Lincoln Brigade, sort of volunteered uh, very similar to the way ISIS recruits, uh, without going into the propaganda aspects of it. Uh, many uh, left-wing thinking people here in America, not many, but several thousand, uh, committed to the Abraham Lincoln Brigade. And, of course, there were famous intellectuals that joined the fight at various times, most famously, of course, uh, Ernest Hemingway and George Orwell. By the way, I recommend reading Orwell's homage, homage to Catalonia which describes the factional fighting, and it is a remarkably realistic account of what war really is about. He talks about the fatigue, the hunger, the cold, the pain, seeing comrades killed nearby. Orwell uh, was only in, in Spain for about six months in 1937, and Homage to Catalonia was sort of his memoir. It's a brief read, but uh, one of his best books. There are certainly comparisons to Syria in many ways, but in, in with the Syrian situation, obviously, uh, you have uh, essentially five major powers uh, that, are, that are now heavily involved in this conflict besides Assad. 
Assad is not going to survive in any recognizable form of Syria. And Syria, let's remember, is a sort of artificial creation as a nation state from the remnants of World War I when the Ottoman Empire was broken up. In the Syrian deadlines is a new article that appears in the most recent edition of the New York Review of Books by Charles Glass. It was written in late September, and it talks about the original uh, warfare that was occurring uh, in Syria back in World War I that led um, to uh, much chaos. And, of course, the problems in Syria are unbelievable um, since many people are emigrating out of Syria to, to avoid being drafted. Uh, more wealthy individuals, of course, are fleeing uh, en masse into Europe and to neighboring states like Lebanon, Jordan, and Turkey. And then, of course, you even have internal migration that is somewhat remarkable. I'll just read this brief uh, paragraph from his article by Charles Glass. He writes, as in World War I, this has led to a uh, surfeit of women supporting their families by any means necessary. Inflation is around 40%. Estimates of territory held by regime opponents run from the United Nations at uh, 65% to Jane's uh, report, that's Jane's uh, military intelligence uh, magazine out of Great Britain, a report of 83%, while UN estimates that anywhere between 60 and 80% of the population still within the country now live in areas held by the government. Migration from the rebel-held areas into the capital has uh, is measured by the company that collects city waste multiplied Damascus's population five times from about 2 million before the war to about 10 million today. The importance of Damascus, of course, is where Assad still uh, maintains power. And if you look on a map of uh, Syria, which is always a fascinating uh, experience to understand what's really going on, I'm going to paraphrase a famous a uh, wit, Ambrose Bierce, once said that war is God's way of it, teaching Americans about geography. Um, there is a remarkable map in Sunday's New York Times showing how complex <clears throat> the Syrian landscape really is. But Damascus, if you uh, look on a map, is way, way down in the southwest corner of Syria. It's very close to the Lebanon border. And it's not far from Israel. And, of course, uh, the Golan Heights are the border dispute between Israel and what remains of the crumbling Damascus Assad regime, which, uh, <clears throat> let's face it, is not going to survive this warfare. The outcome in Syria is, tr is going to be tragic because, as the saying goes, there are no good options. But this article in Sunday's New York Times showing the, con the control <coughs> of various parts of uh, <coughs> Syria are rather interesting. Of course, the reason that the Soviet Union, or I should say Russia, has dispatched uh, its military 
to Syria is to protect its uh, naval base that I believe is located in a place called Lakatkia, which is up uh, north of Lebanon, quite a ways from Damascus, in fact. But the Assad regime controls basically most of the Mediterranean coast, and where all of the real fighting is going on is the Turkish border in which the Kurds have actually taken, as the map shows in uh, three different little snapshots, some substantial chunks, actually, of ISIS's control. The map also shows the spots that the Russian Air Force attacked uh, over this past week. And, of course, this shows that most of the attacks did occur in rebel-controlled Area. Now, the rebel-controlled area is a hodgepodge of factions uh, that the United States is, is very, uh, I don't know, the, the, the commitment that the United States has made to the Syrian quote-unquote rebels is almost non-existent. So this is really a battle between, um, in the north, along the border, between the Kurds and uh, ISIS, and ISIS controls a very strange-looking part of Syria, uh, northern, northeastern part, that really runs along the Euphrates River. And while the map does show a couple of <clears throat> airstrikes by Russia in the ISIS-controlled section, most of what ISIS hit, or most of what the Russians hit, are in the rubble-controlled area that's sort of in a strange spot. It's along the Turkish border in the northwestern part of Syria. And the Turkish-Syrian border is one of the most strange-looking things that you can imagine. Um, I think it's estimated to be about 900 miles. But one of the fascinating things that I uh, sort of recognized uh, as I began reading more about the Syrian refugee problem that's been expanding as the year has gone on are the is the fact that uh, you know in in the early part of uh, of uh, in the spring there were a lot of reports of boats um, capsizing in the Mediterranean that were leaving from Libya going uh, to Italy mainly and as the summer kind of wore on the spring began seeing this human migration uh, that mainly was taking place between Turkey and the Balkans. And if you go back and you uh, look at some of the interesting, uh, shall we say, anthropology of how Indo-European, or as they call it, proto-Indo-European languages spread throughout Europe, you will see that they, these land masses in which people actually walked from the Anatolian region, uh, also known as Turkey, uh, went exactly along these land routes that the migrants are now taking uh, to enter Europe. And without going into the complex aspects of European uh, refugee uh, laws and asylum-seeking and all of that, we certainly know that the prospects of um, massive resettlement of these refugees, or migrants as the critics call it, in um Europe is, is just not going to go as advertised. Uh, there was an article several weeks ago about how the, the German, uh, a German official 
pretty much denies most of the actual asylum claims because it's uh, quite clear that uh, most people who are fleeing from Syria are fleeing the war. And whether or not they're, quote, refugees and where they're supposed to be processed is part of the complicated aspects of Europe. But what we, I think, can say with certainty is that Vladimir Putin has picked up on the fact that Europe is engaged in this refugee crisis, uh, never mind the Greek uh, financial euro crisis that's been ongoing all year that we've talked a little bit about. He's taken advantage of this vacuum, so to speak, and the idea that somehow Putin and the Russians are going to contribute to a real solution in Syria, I think is fanciful. And then when you consider that uh, the Saudi government and other radical uh, Wahhabi Sunnis are supporting this ISIS, these barbarians uh, known as ISIS, who, by the way, blew up yet another uh, historical relic in a uh, city called Palmyra, um, that's kind of in the center, the geometric center of Syria, uh, way away, by the way, from what they actually control. As I mentioned, most of ISIS's control runs along the Euphrates River. And uh, while there are a lot of diplomatic efforts to do something about ISIS, until the parties sort of agree on the real strategy, I don't think anything's going to happen. Because what's quite clear is that the... Russians want Assad to stay. The United States is talking about that he has to go. The Saudis obviously want to overthrow Assad as well. And the Iranians are trying to protect Assad, not so much to retain uh, Damascus, but they're more interested in protecting Hezbollah uh, in Lebanon. And, of course, Syria's uh, governments over the past uh three or four decades have been and played an enormous destabilization role in the government of Lebanon, which, of course, was part of the French mandate dating back to uh, World War I's uh, division of this whole area. In the long run, unless there is a massive commitment to serious ground troops, this is going to continue to really be a ground war between uh, the Kurds and ISIS, uh, possibly an Iraq-led uh, army movement, though I wouldn't count on that, uh, because as one official put it, uh, Iraqis are not going to die to save Anbar province, which of course is part of uh, northwestern Iraq. And, of course, all of this destabilization is part of the uh, whole, uh, you know, the, the whole chaos that was created by the overthrow of Saddam Hussein. You know, it's interesting to look at an article uh, from the September 16th, 2013 edition of The New Yorker, written over two years ago by George Packer. Uh, he's written a lot about the uh, actual Iraq war and the whole regional problems. Uh, the one thing that I can say with certainty is Barack Obama is not going to commit ground troops to any sort of Syrian war. Uh, these airstrikes, these these sort of surgical airstrikes uh, are, are, are limited and have had some effect in supporting Kurdish 
uh, gains that have been made in uh, the uh, northern part of Syria. There's no question about that. But at the end of the day, one of America's great weaknesses in understanding warfare is that war is ultimately a, about ground control. Ground control, a major Tom. Uh, you know, it's just, <laughs> there's, a, there's sort of a chasm. And, of course, when you read the details of World War II uh, about the incredible commitment of ground forces that were, that were made by the uh, Nazis uh, to invade the Soviet Union, combined with the counteroffensive by the Red Army, the numbers are just staggering. Um, and these kinds of numbers um, are just not in the American mag imagination of war. You know, even in Vietnam, the United States only committed about 500. I think the apex of the ground forces there were 570,000 uh, ground forces. And America still never had enough ground troops in, in Vietnam. Uh, you look on a global map, Vietnam looks like a small place. Well, it isn't. <laughs> it actually, the coastline uh, has, uh, um, you know, it's the length of the Mississippi River. And the Syrian-Turkish border is almost beyond comprehension in terms of its length. We're not talking about uh, anything like the Soviet Union, but we are talking about several hundred miles, approaching a thousand miles. I would estimate it at about 900, 900 miles of border. And these borders are just, uh, as we know, there have been ISIS connected uh, jihadists coming in uh, from Turkey in to the ISIS-controlled areas, uh, as well, of course, as refugees flowing out of Syria into Turkey. And this, is, of course, is where most of the refugees that are coming into Europe by land are coming through. And as I uh, was noting about this archaeology, this anthropology, I should say, about the spread of the uh, Proto-Indo-European language, which occurred 8,500 to 9,000 years ago into Europe from uh, the Anatolian region, you know that these uh, ground passes have been, been there for quite some time. Uh, there's a step theory, by the way, of the spread of this uh, Indo-European language that uh, is in an article that I read from uh, that I'm quoting from from the 24th of February uh, 2015 by Nicholas Wade but it's interesting he writes uh, from the reconstructed vocabulary the speakers of Proto-Indo-European seem to have been pastoralists familiar with sheep and wheeled vehicles archaeologists find that wheeled vehicles emerged sometime around 4000 BC suggesting that the Proto-European speakers began to flourish some 6,500 years ago on the steppes and grasslands above the Black and Caspian Sea. The steppe theory favors many, by many linguists, holds that the Proto-Indo-European speakers that spread their language to Europe, India, and Western China, whether by conquest or the appeal of their pastoral economy. So what this chart, this big map of uh, this whole region showing the Caspian Sea, the Black Sea, and the Mediterranean Sea, as well as pretty much the entire continent of Europe, shows that people flowed both into Europe and into Asia from the Anatolia region. 
And from the steppe region, this area north of both the Caspian and Black Sea, uh, flowed similarly uh, into Europe going west and into Asia going east. So it's a very interesting example of why these ground routes that the migrants are using to get into Romania and Hungary and whatnot are using old passages that have been used for thousands of years. Putin, of course, uh, is taking advantage of a situation. I don't see any benefit to, this, to, to Russia in terms of their involvement in this conflict other than there could conceivably be some sort of hashed out uh, diplomatic negotiation that would have to involve the Saudis, the Iranians, the Turks, Assad, the United States, and Russia. And meanwhile, the United States is, is, is really um, the paralysis of power, a phrase that Putin talked about. He, he's just simply taking advantage of the situation. As I mentioned last week, has anybody heard much about the Ukraine? Well, there's been some negotiations to uh, uh, settle that conflict down, but the uh, death toll in, in the Ukraine is, is in the, you know, five, five to 7,000 people. The Syrian death toll is up into the quarter of a million area with refugees that are beyond uh, comprehension and getting worse. And to quote uh, from the Pope, who I'll mention here in a second, um, regarding this whole um, refugee problem um, that is discussed in another article uh, in the... Uh, October 22nd edition of the New York Review of Books. The refugees now fleeing into Europe, Pope Francis recently said, are the, quote, tip of the iceberg. A report released by the UNHCR, which is the UN uh, Organization for Refugees, in June suggests he's right, called a world at war. It documents what Antonio Guterres, the uh, UN High Commissioner for Refugees, describes as an unchecked slide into an era in which the scale of global forces displaced, as well as the response required, is now clearly dwarfing anything seen before. And this, of course, is related to the refugee problem, uh, quoting from an article, The Terrible Flight from the Killing by Hugh Eakin. And this is at the heart of the problem. Now, the Pope, I'll just quickly talk about him. We'll give a brain damage award out to... Um, Ms. Davis's lawyer. This is obviously a publicity hound uh, who um, first held a press conference about a week ago to mention that she was switching uh, her uh, voter registration from Democrat to Republican. Big deal. Who cares? Uh, she apparently visited the Pope uh, sporting a wig, and it's a little unclear what the Vatican and the papacy knew about this meeting, but she did not meet the Pope alone. And, of course, the Vatican had to come out and promptly state that they in no way, shape, or form were endorsing any of Kim Davis's political views. Enough said about her. Uh, as for other uh, sort of strange developments, Kevin McCarthy uh, did not have a good week last year, uh, last week. I'm not too sure what untrustable means, but he used that in an appearance with Sean Hannity. It's a Bushism. He apparently thinks Hungary is called Hungaria. 
uh, where he's somewhat confused between Hungary and Bulgaria. Uh, maybe he's going to call it Hungarania. Who knows? But uh, he's obviously now being uh, challenged for the speakership by uh, Jason Chase, Chaffetz of Utah, and yet another example of the paralysis of power. Um, Kevin against Jason. Ugh, what, what's this country coming to? Uh, Chavitz, for his uh, notoriety from last week, of course, uh, was leading the, uh, the hearings against Planned Parenthood. Uh, yet more examples of fraud emerged from the hearings. It turns out that the uh, video uh, used to discredit or the attempts, attempts to discredit Planned Parenthood were not an aborted fetus whatsoever. They were a stillborn human being that was used apparently without permission. Uh, more examples of fraud there. As for untrustable and Kevin McCarthy's claim that uh, uh, the Benghazi hearings have hurt Hillary Clinton politically, that, of course, is just simply false. Uh, there have been numerous reports about Benghazi. Uh, they've not hurt Hillary Clinton. What's hurt her is uh, the email scandal, and I'm still trying to figure out what the scandal is. But the emails keep getting released. Uh, they're pretty fascinatingly dull material. And mentioning emails and Facebook and all this other nonsense, it's beyond time for the media to uh, to, to not uh, post uh, these uh, mass shooting people on on uh, on uh, computer screens and websites. It's time to to actually picture the skull of the person, not the face. Just to mention, uh, we are out of time here on Gray Matters. You are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Do stay tuned. Andrew's been our engineers tonight. And as for the Republican battle, it's a battle of the young gubs, not the young guns. Good night. The Atomic Alphabet by Chris Burden. W for war, C for combat, B for bomb, N for nuclear, F for fallout. Him for mutant! Hey, hey, hey! WCBN FM and on. Have a nice day. Here's how it's done. I mix a little bit of this. With a little bit of that. Drop in something different. And add some spice. Then I shake it up in the shimmy, shimmy shaker and let it brew real nice. And that's what makes Sachet's Shimmy Shimmy Cocoa Bop a flavorful mixed blend of roots, blues, folk, bluegrass, country, zydeco, jump blues, and good old rock and roll. Shake your booty every Thursday night from 8 to 9 following Our Wolf's Face the Music with me, Sashay Delmonico.
Yeah, you should check out that show, and you should check out all of our shows. Um, You shouldn't even sleep. It's WCBN 24-7, bringing you the best variety of music that you can find anywhere in the Western Hemisphere. Maybe even the entire world.